the Brexit Breakdown Podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown Podcast. I'm James Miller, author, journalist, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Well, we might finally find out something definitive about Brexit in the next 24 hours. As we record this on Friday afternoon, we know Boris Johnson and the EU have made a deal. We don't yet know if Parliament likes it or not. What we do know is that the crucial sticking point is, has been, and may well still be for some time to come, Ireland, the island of Ireland, the border between Northern Ireland in the UK and the Republic of Ireland in the EU. And in attempting to untangle that, I literally could not have better guests on this podcast. I'm joined by Jonathan Powell, currently director of Intermediate, an NGO working on armed conflict, it says on Twitter. I assume on reducing and generally solving <laughs> armed conflict is the, when we can. Is the, the goal. Um, more pertinently for our purposes, you were Tony Blair's chief of staff, right-hand man in government and chief UK negotiator on the Good Friday Agreement. You know something about Northern Ireland, it's fair to say. I used to. <laughs> and from the UK to Changing Europe, uh, another new face or new voice for the podcast. Yes, I was having a conversation in the pub this week with someone about who our favourite UK to Changing Europe wonk is. <laughs> and yes... It was her. It's Queen University, Queen's University, Belfast political sociologist Katie Hayward. Oh, thanks very much. Um, I genuinely had we had that conversation about who's the best one, and we were like, who's best on Question Time, and and or Catherine. <laughs> First of all, Katie, what is a political sociologist? <laughs> You're going to ask me that to start off. Yeah. Um, oh, it's just the best type of sociologist, obviously. What, 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 why aren't you? I don't know. What's that mean? Well, to be honest, my background is between political science and sociology, and bringing them together in political sociology makes a lot of sense. Oh, so particularly interested in, guess the dynamics of power. It's power a cut and shut used. job, basically. Sorry, it's a cut and shut job. You yeah, take yeah. two, two, exactly the best two of, things best and of stick both together. together yeah. um, right, that was the that was the easy question. Uh, <laughs> the next one is right. Here we are. There is a deal. Can you explain to me, an idiot, what is this deal? Uh, in simple terms, what is it and what does it sort of mean? Okay, so we know from the very beginning that uh, the EU has had one of its top three priorities as being avoiding a hard Irish border. And we've gone back and forth, back and forth about this. Um, and when Theresa May came back with a deal um, uh, in November 2018, um, basically what we had there to avoid a hard Irish border was uh, the backstop, um, which prioritised um, keeping the Irish border as open as it is at the moment, um, but also brought the, all of the UK into, um, into that arrangement. Um, so it meant that all of the UK was committed in certain ways to keeping aligned with the EU on, on customs in particular. This is rather different in that it places all the burden for avoiding a hard Irish border on Northern Ireland. Um, so Britain can um, be free to go and make its uh, be global Britain, if you like. Uh, Northern Ireland, in theory, can get the benefits of that. Uh, but primarily, it's about um, Northern Ireland being aligned in terms of customs and in terms of regulation with the EU, basically so the status quo. To all intents and purposes, Northern Ireland stays in the EU 
practically, but not legally or politically? Well, this is a fascinating <laughs> thing because uh, in in legal terms, Northern Ireland will be part of the UK's customs territory. Yeah. De facto, it will be in the EU's customs union because it will be applying most of the EU's rules. So there's an ambiguity there, which I'm kind of surprised to see. Um, the previous, the backstop itself, was actually much more clear on that. Um, so there's a bit of, you know, hokey pokery with the, uh, if, is that a word? I'm not sure. Higgledy piggledy with the with the with the with the language here. Right. Um, but for all intents and purposes, you're absolutely right. Northern Ireland be part of the single market for goods, and uh, effectively in the EU's um, customs union. Um, at the start of this in 2016, Jonathan, is that what you would have predicted? Is that what you'd have written as the solution to the Northern Ireland border question? Well, uh, no, uh, but maybe. The, it was always clear to me right from the campaign, and people say this wasn't raised in the campaign. It was raised in the campaign by John Major and Tony Blair, who went to campaign in Northern Ireland together, uh, warning of the dangers of a hard border and warning the dangers that Brexit would pose for Northern Ireland. So this is an issue that's been on the table for a long time. And I always thought this was an issue that Brexit would trip up over, and it r- really has tripped up over that repeatedly. The solution they've come to is good news in one sense, in that it's avoided the real danger of a hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. That was a really serious danger that would have undermined the Good Friday Agreement, and that has been resolved. Essentially what Boris Johnson has done, uh, if you take off the bells and whistles, he's essentially accepted the, all, um, the Northern Ireland-only backstop, which means Northern Ireland remains in the customs union and the single market for goods, and that's a very good thing. The problem is he's introduced this hard border between Northern Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom, and that creates real problems for unionists. Right. No. Um, it would undermine... A hard border would undermine the Good Friday Agreement. Uh, how? The Good Friday Agreement was trying to solve the problem that we have people living in Northern Ireland who feel that they are Irish and want to be mm. part of United Ireland. We have people who live there who are British and want to be part of the United Kingdom, and that is not solved. There's still people who have the different mm-hmm. opinions of what it should be. What we tried to do is make the issue of identity, this, whether you are Irish or British, less salient, less significant. And the way we were able to do this was to build on the open border that had been opened up by both Ireland and Britain joining uh, the European Union and then by the security threat going down, which meant we could open up the border. We m- built on that open border to allow people to f- live in Northern Ireland and feel Irish, to have Irish passports, to shop in Dundalk, to take their flights from Dublin or to feel British and go to Harrods or whatever it might be. So you were able, because of the Good Friday Agreement, to park that issue of identity and take it out of, uh, out of um, violent politics. Right. I just need to pick up one thing there. Katie, you live in Northern Ireland. How many people mm-hmm. in Northern Ireland do you know that shop at Harrods? Is that a thing? <laughs> Is that a thing that Northern Irish people do? Is well, it, have I, I missed something here? My mother-in-law in Dublin um, has a Harrods, very proudly based Harrods uh, tea, tea cosy. Oh, a tea cosy. Yeah, she yeah. shopped in Harrods. Is no, that a thing that I no, missed out no. on? So the border then was, you know, in terms of the practicalities, in terms of the actual thing, the border, it was a vital part of the Good Friday Agreement. Yes, it's not uh, so. It's not an item that was put into the, the Good Friday Agreement as such. It's more about uh, the objective of this agreement and how it was built on this open border. We couldn't have done it without that open border. We couldn't have done it without the um, Common Travel Area, for example, as well. And it was discussed in those negotiations. I mean, I suppose as an outsider, you see, you know, we sort of talk about the Good Friday Agreement and we always talk about the sort of identity thing. You know, obviously that's not a tangible thing, identity, I would suggest, um, whereas the border is. Um, so I wouldn't have known or in the, the coverage at the time 
have necessarily understood that the border was key to the whole Good Friday Agreement, and you know, but not in a sort of uh, headline sort of way. Yes, I think people. One of the problems there's been in this whole discussion over the last three years is people keep trying to solve the problem as if the issue was really how long does it take a lorry to cross the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. That will be a problem in Dover. It's going to be a problem in other places on the borders of the United Kingdom. That is not the significant issue in the case of Northern Ireland. For for us, it's the idea of a border. If you put a border mm. in, people can no longer have that same uh, freedom to feel their identity, and that's really the issue. Um, can I just follow up on that? Mm. So when I've spoken with people who are maybe outside of the UK even about this particular issue, um, some people say, well, it's a foreign country, the Republic of Ireland is a foreign country, so it kind of makes sense to have a border. You know, people shouldn't be so anxious about this. The point is that many, many people living in Northern Ireland don't see the Republic of Ireland as a foreign country by any means. In fact, it's their homeland. And uh, that sort of getting that position for Northern Ireland in which people can feel... Um, Absolutely Irish and, and part of the uh, part of Ireland, um, and also absolutely British and part of the UK. That that was the, the the magic of the Good Friday Agreement. That really has come under pressure with Britain and Ireland being pulled further apart um, by the Brexit process. But come on, when you say you talk to people outside the UK and they say that, uh, people inside the UK have no idea about the, the, what's going on inside <laughs> Ireland as well, right? I mean, yes. you say that it was. Uh, as you say, John Major and Tony Blair went to, to Northern Ireland during the referendum campaign, but it wasn't really paid attention to, was it? I mean, that was in terms of the coverage in the media, in terms of the, the, the politicians who were driving both campaigns, it wasn't given sufficient coverage. It certainly wasn't the top issue in the campaign in uh, Great Britain, that's for sure. But it was sufficient for it to be attacked by the Brexiteers. Theresa Villiers, who was the Northern Ireland Secretary at the time and a leading Brexiteer, immediately went on the attack saying, absolute nonsense, there'll be no problem the border, it'll be solved by technology. And we've been looking for that technology for three years and we've finally given up the search. The magic robots. She also said there's never been a hard border on the island of Ireland, which was extraordinary because it came less than a decade after the military watchtowers had been completely dismantled. Um, So why was it overlooked in both I suggest in the run-up to the referendum and in the immediate aftermath it wasn't like you know Brexit won the referendum and suddenly everyone went whoa hang on what about Ireland I mean it took a while before people started going oh tick 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 hang on we got an issue here there's people and there's people so there's people here <laughs> took All a right. while and immediately you know within hours I mean not that we hadn't been saying it beforehand but within hours of the referendum result unsurprisingly Sinn Féin came out and was saying uh, this means we should have a border poll, you know, it makes Irish yeah. unity more desirable, but also Enda Kenny, the Taoiseach, the Irish Taoiseach, mm. pointed to Britain's responsibilities vis-a-vis the Good Friday Agreement, and he too mentioned the border poll and the importance of um, that Irish identity and the integrity of the island of Ireland as formalised through the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement. So I think there's an interesting uh, space there about how long it took actually Britain and maybe even London, maybe even MPs, for the penny to drop about, you know, recognising the consequences of Brexit for Northern Ireland. And that says something interesting about the dynamics within the UK itself. Yeah, I mean, it speaks to a broader ignorance about Northern Ireland. I mean, we, John Curtis uh, comes on this podcast and he's got the polling that shows mm. that people in the UK generally wouldn't be terribly upset if Northern Ireland were to disappear from the UK. So if you want to understand why the DUP have behaved the way that they have or the position that they've taken um, look at those figures and even mm. look at the rumours about what you know what you know key people inside 10 Downing Street have been saying about Northern Ireland um, just the idea that it could 
hopefully disappear. Um, so part of the part of the anxiety or the if you if you want to understand the sort of the intransigence or the stubbornness or however you want want to put it, um, the commitment of the DUP um, in, through all of this it's been primarily about preserving the union and that's their that's their absolute modus operandi. Um, and now they've been thrown under the bus. They have had to they they have had to face the the realities of the fact that what they wanted to see from Brexit possibly was never going to come about. And, and I would say that that's the case for all of the parties in Northern Ireland. I'm not sure if Jonathan agrees. But very soon after after the referendum, there was a letter from the First Minister and Deputy First Minister to Theresa May in that August. And then if you look at what the manifestos of all the political parties said in the 2017 election, they were all pretty much saying we want things to remain as they are. Um, and all mentioning, you know, the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland, some emphasising the Good Friday Agreement more than others, but essentially not wanting things to change, wanting to take back control, not have things change. There's an interesting discussion to, to be had about whether that's the case actually for all of the UK. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. Maybe some of the, you know, the yeah. logic of Brexit really hasn't um, filtered through. We had to face up to the reality of what Brexit means because of the Irish border becoming an external EU border. Um, and therefore it's you know, force those very difficult decisions to be made. Um, Just going back to your question about why it wasn't immediately such a salient issue, I think the reason for that is it would have been possible for the Brexiteers to opt for a Norway Plus option. They could have opted Mm. for us to leave and stay in the single market and stay in the customs union, in which case it wouldn't have been the same sort of problem in Northern Ireland. But they didn't. When this really became uh, such an obvious problem was when Theresa May made a series of contradictory promises. You know, she made these speeches where she promised... Uh, that there'd be no hard border. She promised the unionists there'd be no border between Northern Ireland and um, the rest of the United Kingdom. And she promised the Brexiteers that she'd leave the customs union in a single market. And those three things were not compatible. They never were. Yeah. Um, I don't know how history's going to write this up, but it's going to be fun to watch. Uh, put it that way. They're not compatible, except, except we have that stretch for Northern Ireland and put the pressure on Northern Ireland. And mm. I think this is what we're seeing now. So Northern Ireland will... You know, the, 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 its borders, the Irish sea border, the Irish land border is going to be put under pressure and strain. It's going to change. Um, and that's where you see the, 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 the creaking consequences of Brexit. Um, so for the time being, with this deal, if it, if we, if it comes to pass, um, we will see um, over time that more and more pressure being put on that Irish sea border as Britain uh, the, disappears. The, to the Global distance. Yes, global Britain. The <laughs> creaking consequences of Brexit. Did you just make that up? That's a great turn of phrase. <laughs> Better than hokey um, poker. Well, like, I don't want to be, yeah. you know, I don't want to be all stereotypical. But you, you Irish people with your your command of language, isn't it beautiful? <laughs> um, I said there's a sort of general ignorance about Northern Ireland. Uh, clearly, that is not true of you, Jonathan. Uh, you know it extremely well. Has anybody from the government, from the EU, uh, mainly from the government, phoned you up in the last three years and said? Come and talk to us. What the hell are we going to do about this? Well, firstly, I don't want to claim great knowledge of uh, of Northern Ireland. Before I was sent off to the British Embassy in Washington in uh, 1991, I had never been to Northern Ireland. I knew nothing about it. They made me go there because my job was to defend the Northern Ireland policy on the on the Hill in Congress. So I had to go and learn about it, and I found it fascinating and stayed committed to it ever since. Frankly, since I left government, it's been very hard to follow what happens in Northern Ireland because it's not reported here in Britain. 
uh, really doesn't, until recently, didn't make it into newspapers at all. So I don't claim to be any sort of expert. But no, no one from uh, neither the Theresa May government, perhaps not surprisingly, nor the, uh, the current government have ever asked me uh, about uh, my views on Northern Ireland or any way of helping. But that is surprising because, you know, <laughs> we forget, or I forget to some extent, it's been 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement, which seems remarkable because... Surely I'm only 25, and I was about 25 when the good. I just can't. I don't understand how this could be. Um, but that was a hell of an achievement, you know. People like me, and you know, obviously older than me, had grown up with Northern Ireland being something of a headache, shall we say? Um, and then it was solved. I mean, you know, I'm simplifying. I get. It. I appreciate it wasn't solved overnight, yeah. but um, you clearly had to do the work, had to understand the situation to to get there. So that would have some sort of read across to the current situation, wouldn't it, that expertise? Possibly, but I think there was a conscious decision, I know there was a conscious decision by Number 10 Downing Street, uh, really from the time of Gordon Brown, but certainly from the time of David Cameron, not to be involved in Northern Ireland. They didn't appoint any officials handling Northern Ireland. They didn't have any political figure responsible for Northern Ireland. Their idea was to devolve the issue back to the Northern Ireland office and say, don't bother us with it, we don't need to worry about it, which takes us straight back to the 1960s and where a lot of this trouble began. And if you talk to someone like Hayden Phillips, who was uh, private secretary to the uh, to Roy Jenkins when he was Home Secretary, he used to get letters on his desk raising issues about Northern Ireland. He had a stock reply which says, don't bother us about this, it's nothing to do with us, go and talk to the government instalment. So this British ignorance about Northern Ireland, which is partly deliberate attempt to avoid having to deal with the issue, was the problem then and has been the problem now. I mean, is it just me, Katie? Back me up on this one. This is fairly remarkable, isn't it? I mean, is it not reasonable to expect government to go, right, Northern Ireland border, that looks like a bit of a headache. Who are the best experts we can call and who knows about this stuff? I mean, I expect you both to be called into number 10 to some extent. But, you know, I know you sort of look at the politics and go, well, of course, you know, he's a Labour man. Why would a Tory government get get involved? But come on, Brexit's really complicated. Is it, is it? Am I completely wrong to expect the government to actually call up the best experts to help with this? There's, there are interesting books to be written, I think, looking back on all of this, even the last couple of years, about how expertise has been used and not used and how stakeholders have been consulted and not and perhaps this doesn't go just to experts and then people with great experience and, and, and insights into what goes on in Northern Ireland but more to the point officials as well and how expertise within um, Whitehall and the civil service more generally has been drawn upon or not um, uh, especially given the complexities and the sensitivities of all of this um, uh, and just to talk about the deal or whatever it you know, might be I, I, I do think there's still so much yet to be decided and determined about it and I, I would mm-hmm. um, hope that given the enormous significance of Northern Ireland in particular um, for, for both of its borders I would hope that there be channels put forward I, I live in hope that it might get better <laughs> uh, that they may draw upon that expertise and formalise means of getting those stakeholders to have an input into the future post-Brexit governments in Northern Ireland, I think it's absolutely And it's very critical. strikingly different from the government in Dublin, where they really have called in oh, expertise, yes. where they've made a great deal of effort to bring back yeah. people who were involved, even consulted people like Bertie Ahern, who was, who was part of it, and with very, very able officials. And frankly, as far as there have been imaginative ideas in this whole thing, they have come out of Dublin and out of the Irish government. OK, now, I've been talking you up as an expert uh, uh, and all the rest of it. I'm going to bet to perform a massive U-turn here, because you should have seen this coming in the Good Friday Agreement. Why didn't you write a clause into the Good Friday Agreement that says, in the event of Brexit, here's what's going to happen? 
Because it never occurred to us anyone would be stupid enough to propose that the United Kingdom leave the European Union. Well, that's a feeling on your part. It certainly is, but lack of imagination, I agree with that. (laughs) Well, okay, (laughs) I'll answer that question easily. I mean, the other part of that is, like I think, it's 20 years since the Good Friday Agreement. Um, Is there potential to rewrite it? Is it time to sort of go, well, you know, that that Good Friday Agreement applied to Ireland in the 90s. We're 20 years on, clearly things have changed. Uh, Maybe we could write a new one? Well, a bit like the British Constitution, uh, just because you have some things that are written doesn't mean you have everything written down, and the Good Friday Agreement has adapted. The most remarkable thing about the Good Friday Agreement, really, was the fact that Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, two people who'd spent decades at war, were able to sit down and make the thing work, and actually were kept the institutions up and running it. I found that absolutely amazing. So it wasn't so much just the words on paper, it was making it function in practice. What's so sad now is, of course, that the Assembly and the government hasn't been sitting for a thousand days and looks very little prospect of getting it up again soon. And that's with people who are from another generation, from a generation who weren't themselves fighting in a war. They may have been affected by it in the way that Arlene Foster was, but they can't seem to make it work. And this Brexit mess is going to make it even harder for them to get those institutions up and running. How can one put this? Uh, It's a fairly unusual situation where you're wishing Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley back to make things better. I mean, is that Mm. fair to say that if we had people of their stature, if that's the word? Mm. um, If we had people of leaders who were prepared mm. to take risks and uh, and do these things, I think that would make a big difference. It wouldn't solve the problem of Brexit, which has roiled this whole thing and brought up the issue of identity again, but it would help a lot. Mm. Do we need a new Good Friday Agreement? Uh, No, we don't. I mean, there's been lots of successor agreements to the agreement, Mm. um, some of which, including St Andrews, have got us in some of the pickles we've been Mm. in, I think, um, because, I mean, what Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley represented, of course, were the harder lines of unionism Mm. and nationalism, which which weren't expected when the Good Friday Agreement was drawn up to be the ones, you know, calling the shots, want to have a much better phrase. Um, (laughs) So... uh, so that's kind of so in in a funny way, you know, the agreement generation uh, looks at politics in Northern Ireland and thinks, thinks it doesn't represent them, and um, uh, you know the the sort of the, the things that are most important, for example, to my students and to my children, are are, are not um, you know they're away from the border. And this is this is why it's brought. This is why Brexit has been quite so um, quite so enormous. For, for Northern Ireland is because it's forced that border issue back on the table and forced people to have, you know, to consider identities in in and politics in more binary ways than they than they have for for some time. Especially that younger generation, I think, is quite crucial. And does the current proposal, which as we sit here is a proposal, might be an agreement within very short notice, might not. Um, does that solve it? Does that take away that issue? No, it oh. doesn't. Uh, uh, so partly because of the. The, the issue of consent, so um, which has been widely used and abused, I think, um, in the past while. But this idea that Northern Ireland needs to have a say over the agreement, um, and the way that it's been used, without getting into the nitty gritty of it, uh, has led to the situation in which Northern Ireland Assembly will have a vote on um, on whether Northern Ireland aligns um, continues to align with the EU or whether it um, aligns instead to, to Great Britain. Um, and this essentially you're you're forcing that issue, that choice, that binary choice between being closer to Ireland or closer to Britain, back into the Northern Ireland Assembly, back onto the people who are voting for the MLAs, and um, 
it had never gone away, but there was a hope that the future politics in Northern Ireland would be about, you know, bread and butter issues and um, and things that are, you know, enormous concern to people trying to run businesses and, and bring up kids and et cetera, et cetera, in Northern Ireland. And I'd just be worried that actually in a funny way, you're actually reinforcing the idea that this is what matters. Are you closer to Britain or closer to Ireland? I totally agree with that. And one of the ironies of this whole thing is that, of course... DUP didn't participate in the negotiations for Good Friday at all. The only time they turned up at the negotiating centre was when Ian Paisley led a march against it with Lambeg drums. So the fact they're now champions of the Good Friday Agreement and insist on consent when they've always been questioning consent is quite paradoxical. And nonetheless, one of the problems with this uh, agreement that he's reached with the EU is that it does um, challenge us on this issue of consent because... The DUP are right when they say that by making this issue a simple majority issue, uh, you are challenging the whole issue of consent in Stormont. Uh, Because if you can change it for one issue, they have long been demanding you should change it for other issues, and they should have majoritarian voting. So they will then start pushing for that. So even if we can get Stormont up and running again, this is going to mess up the running of Stormont because people will say, well, if you have a majority for that, let's have a majority for something else. And you'll get away from power sharing, which was the whole basis of the Good Friday Agreement. So all these issues have arisen purely because the Ramonas have been going on about the border. That's really what's been going on here, isn't it? This has been flammed up by the... Oh, we're talking about all these problems, that have, but we could have just had magic robots and sorted it. <laughs> is that right? The, the, or is it, you know, there is a Brexit stream of thought that says the Irish border has been yeah. flammed up by Ramonas. That's one of the things and I've found most frustrating about the last three years. Whenever I go on TV or radio to debate with the Brexiteers, firstly, they know nothing about Northern Ireland. Most of them have never been there. And then they come up with this sort of magical thinking that this isn't really an issue. The border's been there all the time. Why does it matter that uh, there's going to be a harder border? And anyway, it can all be solved by technology. And when you say to them, well, the technology doesn't exist, they say, yes, there is. I can find this report that says such and such. Then I actually go and read the report and it says, well, the technology hasn't yet been invented, but if it was invented, you'd need to have gates on the border. And the trouble is the journalists, they're all generalists, and they don't know about Northern Ireland, and they haven't read these reports. So these people get away for three years of making this rubbish up, and only now is that stuff being thrown out the window. No, no, no. There's a, a thread of hardcore Remainers who will do anything to stop Brexit and they have built up the Irish border issue bigger than it really is. Unless they try, and, bl- unless right, they try and blame it. it. Well, the other thing they try and blame it on, of course, is Leo Varadkar and how much worse he is than his predecessors. His predecessors would have rolled over and made this absolutely fine. But Varadkar, for electoral reasons, is making this into such a dramatic issue. The Northern Ireland border was a very serious problem. It is where all of the IRA campaigns have started throughout history. Uh, it was in my younger days before we got into the negotiations a heavily militarised border which people couldn't cross and if they did cross they risked getting shot to go back to those days to go back to the days where this becomes an issue is to try and reverse everything we've done over the last 25 odd years and that would be such a shame Has has Varadka had that election yet? I've just remembered when you were talking to Bernard Jenkins this was about 18 months ago and he said oh Varadka's just played up to the crowd for the the election Yeah. When's the election in, in Ireland? Uh, well, maybe next year. Oh, yeah, okay. Maybe next year. Maybe in the I spring. Maybe that. in the summer. Yeah. But For Adka's election. Yeah. Yes, that's right. And him trying to be as green as possible to defeat him. Yeah, I, I know extraordinary that. things we've heard um, um, here about Irish politics. <laughs> Can I say, can I give a little plug for some research I've done in the Central Border Region yes. recently, which gives some survey data to to this this kind of question? I mean, first and foremost, about the idea that the border's been, you know, um, pumped up as a, as a problem. I mean, fundamentally, Brexit means 
taking back control of our borders, right? Mm. Um, um, people talking primarily about immigration, but also there's, there's customs and there's even the single market, as Jonathan was saying earlier. So the border does become a very, um, it becomes a hard border as a consequence of that and how we manage that um, entails enormous change to practice. So if we go and look in the central border region, and I've um, worked on a study called the border into Brexit, um, which is the third round of a study in the central border region, and basically what we see there um, is from from leavers and remainers um, a, a sense of um, the significance of this change. Now I should say those respondents who say the border isn't going to be a problem, you know, the, there won't be a hard border, tend from living in that area tend to say. Well, the UK doesn't want a border. Ireland doesn't want a border. There won't be a border. Mm. Um, and we know, like you know, in international legal terms, that's not. It would be nice, but no, it, it doesn't work that way. So then the question is, well, what? How do we, you know? Well, why? Why can't it work that way? I mean, because this uh, is the claim, isn't it? That yeah. you know, well, we're not going to put up border posts. So why should anybody put up border posts? So we could all just pretend it's not there. If the UK wants to be serious, um, you know. UK, UK on the, on the, serious. So have you been have you been asleep <laughs> for the last three years? UK and serious. <laughs> if the UK wants to be a serious player on the world stage, it has to be, especially in, you know in terms of making trade agreements, it has to be able to say, you know, if you're doing if you're doing a deal with us, this is what it is. This is where our borders are. This is how we manage it because you can trust that when we're selling you stuff, it's our stuff and not stuff that's being snuck over the border. Um, and I I am always bewildered by the idea that. Well, you can turn a bit of, you know, you can turn a blind eye to smuggling that goes on in the Irish border um, region. You know, it's no, no big deal um, because essentially you're saying that illegality is part of the course in our in our, in the territory of the UK, and it's just n- no big issue. Apart from the fact that has devastating effect on legal businesses, which have been struggling against all the odds. It's taken a long, long time for that border region to begin to develop, and it's only beginning to develop. Um, it's a, apart from what that would mean for them. Uh, what does it mean for the UK that you just say, well, you know, <laughs> if you want to do a deal with it, just ignore that little, you know, difficult corner um, that we have where there's uh, basically uh, a wild west in terms of um, customs arrangements. It just doesn't make any sense on any on, uh, on any front. Is that, you know, I mean, you are a senior fellow. I'm not sure if you're allowed to have actual feelings or personal interests, but mm. as somebody who lives in Ireland, and I'm not going into Irish identity, but just the general... Uh, reaction or uh, you know feeling of the UK to like you say to sort of go well it's a bit of smuggling there mm. is a bit of well it's Ireland it's not as important as if there were smugglers coming up through Surrey for example is it either yes. not even necessarily to you but to people you talk to to, to the communities in Ireland is there a sort of feeling that you are being mistreated uh, just mm. just oh, yeah, all right I got to watch the language but you know just in generally uh, patronised perhaps is a better word I think all of Ireland people from all backgrounds on the island of Ireland yeah. feel that yeah. um, and probably some of the language that's been used has been almost deliberately designed yeah. to, to raise I remind people of how it used to be um, Alright, let's turn yeah. it on its head though Has it actually been a good thing for Northern Ireland? Because people are paying attention and learning <laughs> just as, you know, the last three years people learn more about the EU than they ever have done for the 40 years before mm. that you know, Ireland's getting more attention than it has but, for at least the last 20 years I mean, before that it was quite bad attention it was getting um, is it a good thing that people actually understand Ireland better now? Well, I return to your earlier point about remoning, and so when we've had, and I think there has been a really, um, there has been a positive thing come out of Brexit in Northern Ireland, and that is that we've had the public sphere filled with voices that hadn't been there before, 
Um, and, and I'm thinking particularly of community organisations, but most particularly of business that hasn't actually stepped to the stepped up to the mark when it comes to uh, making comments on various uh, policy issues. It's been very quiet, and all the, land, the mm. public sphere has been dominated by the same old, same old. So this is good, but then they've been heard here as being they've been categorised into the moaning camp, which is really I mean you're inheriting the sort of ostracisation of politics, this idea that you arrive in one camp or the other, and the and very genuine concerns are being completely ignored. And so I return to the central border region, and where it's all at, I mean, these are the people literally on the front line of Brexit, and they feel completely voiceless and unheard. And the, the emotions that come through in the survey data, particularly now, are very, are very powerful, because they're explaining about the devastation that they would feel regarding a hard border, not just on their businesses or on their, you know, living and working across the other side of the border or on the next generation but most particularly what it brings back to the fore in terms of the horrendous Mm. experience um, and the legacy of conflict and how difficult it has been to build relations and how tenuous that trust and fragile that peace has been and they feel it completely under threat um, and they don't see any benefit from Brexit. Even those who want to leave can't really say exactly what the benefit will be to Northern Mm. Ireland in particular. Yeah, I mean, it must remind you of uh, the Good Friday Agreement stuff. You know, that talk of emotion, you know, because presumably with the Good Friday Agreement, a lot of it was trying to put that emotion back in a box to some extent. Um, yeah. So you can have a sort of a more normal, and I'm doing air quotes, society and move forward and, you know, all the prosperity we've seen in, in Northern Ireland since, sort of thing. Yeah, it was to get over the divisions. How, yeah. you know, how do people feel after they or their relatives have been injured or killed by the other side that then have to sit down with them and live with them? And that's what we've done quite a good job of doing in those 25 years. Not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but it settled down. As Katie was saying earlier, people were arguing about education. They were arguing about health instead of arguing about identity, instead of arguing about whether it should be a United Kingdom or a United Ireland. And that was all for the good, and that was all healthy. So I think it's quite hard to find the silver lining in, in this debate for Ireland or for Northern Ireland. I think it's probably non-existent. And on the smuggling issue, I, I feel quite strongly about this. I, 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 smuggling was a really serious problem in terms of the funding of paramilitary organisations. And to make light of it and make a joke, I find really quite offensive. And furthermore, this nonsense about it's 1% of trade, and therefore it doesn't matter if there's a gaping back door to the EU. There's 1% of trade because that's what the trade you have at the moment is. If you have a gaping back door to the EU, you're going to find a whole lot more trade going that way, and it's not trade we want to have. So I think people are just being a little bit silly about this. Yeah, it's an issue of language, I'd suggest. I mean, smuggling, you just start thinking of pirates and stuff, mm. uh, and not taking... Um, it's true, you that know, explains you know, you, a lot, Jake. Well, you, 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 people in the UK, I'd suggest, don't take the idea of smuggling seriously, because they watch okay. Poldark and they think, that's smuggling, you know. <laughs> okay. But it's serious, as you say, it's yeah. very it's deadly serious, literally deadly serious in Absolutely. terms of the Irish border, but... And there's Donald's a lack of understanding. Right. The, the, you know, the profits and smuggling, as it happens at the moment, hmm. you know, uh, connected to criminal gangs, connected very closely to paramilitary organisations on both sides. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, you, you increase the opportunity for smuggling, making money that way. You're basically lining the pockets of people who um, use violence against their own communities and potentially against other communities too. Um, so where do we go now? What happens now? What is... Uh, well, short-term... Short-term, I think, is... is too confused to make too many decent predictions, but long. I think we can look longer term, can't we? Um, you know, is a United Ireland on the agenda somewhere down the road, or does this just we just have this deal and it just every four years Stormont just ticks a box? I mean, what what's the? I, I think this deal is quite problematic in terms of the Good Friday Agreement. It solved 
uh, thanks to the work of the Irish government and the EU, the problem of a border in Ireland between Northern Ireland and the rest of Ireland. But it has created a great new problem in terms of this border between, hard border between the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. And as Katie was saying, that's going to grow wider and wider over time as we diverge in terms of regulation, as we diverge in terms of tariffs. That border is going to become harder to cross. There could be more checks. This joint committee that's going to be set up will have to look at more and more items that have to be checked as they go through. And that is going to be a problem for identity of those who are unionists. Now, we've solved, hopefully, the problem for those who want to feel Irish and are Republicans and nationalists. But those who want to feel British are going to be crossing a border every time they come. Now, it's a sea border, which helps. So you do it at airports and in the ports. But nonetheless, it is going to be a border. And I think the DUP have a fair point when they say this is really difficult for them to live with. There's a reason we've now heard again from UVF last weekend making threats. Mm. Names we hoped we weren't going to hear from again. UDA meeting with Arlene Foster. This is an issue, and this issue isn't going to go away if we just sign this deal, agree it, and plunge on ahead with it. This is going to, and ignore the DUP, as Boris Johnson appears to be going to do now. This problem is not going to go away. This is going to get worse, and we will have to deal with it. And I re- the reason, of course, the DUP worry about this is they do see it as a slippery slope to a united Ireland. And they're not entirely wrong about that, because um, if you have that kind of border, and if people start looking to the south more and more, and looking to the EU. And we've already seen the numbers move in the polls, as, uh, particularly as Catholic voters who are, um, uh, who were traditionally about a third of them against the United Ireland and for the United Kingdom. That's gone down to about 10%, I think, in the polls. Uh, so that the, and given the demographic gap now is very small between uh, Protestants and Catholics, uh, you can see circumstances in which this will lead to a United Ireland. And that's going to open up a whole new problem. Imagine you have a referendum in uh, in Northern Ireland, a border poll, and it's 52-48, like the Brexit <laughs> poll, then what on earth is the Irish government going to do by incorporating 900,000 people who don't want to be incorporated into the Republic of Ireland? It's going to be a nightmare. Um, but that is... Uh, I absolutely take on board everything you've said there, but the end point there is the United Ireland. It could be a very violent United Ireland, which the United Kingdom will certainly be tied up. Yeah. Would you agree? Mm. I mean, you know... It, in theory, that seems to be where we've heard for years about the demographics of Northern Ireland are, yes. are heading towards, uh, you know, um, the nationalists would win a, a, yeah. a poll if there was one sort of thing. Is that yeah. as a sociologist, I'd always correct that because it's not the case that all Catholics are nationalists. No, it always seems very simplistic. Yes, just, it is it's far too <laughs> simplistic, as John has explained. Yes, um, but funnily enough, uh, looking at the data that we see now, we actually it's becoming more like that. So. Catholics are more likely to say they want a united Ireland because primarily now you'd be talking about rejoining the EU. Uh, it's much yes. more than you know joining yes. the twenty-six counties. Um, so that that has changed the dynamics. But on the other hand, in the polls, we also see um, people who are unionist um, saying they're more likely to be strong unionists and increasingly resistant to the idea of Irish unity. So we have a, a reinforcing of that division that um, we've certainly not got rid of but there's defu- been defused by the by the agreement um, and that seems to be coming back, back to the fore somewhat How long before we can return to the ignorance of Northern Ireland you know there was a nice ignorance of Northern Ireland because after the Good Friday Agreement everything was not everything but broadly things were operating that, as they should 
and the fact that Britain was broadly ignorant of, of what went on around wasn't really a problem. That was, was kind of a, the aim, just the same as well, the, aim, I mean, the aim of the Good Friday Agreement was to make Northern Ireland boring again. That was yeah. our sort of strapline, and that's what we tried to do, and it did work. The Northern Ireland, as I was said, they argued about education, they argued about water, they argued about burning wood chips. Uh, they didn't argue about killing each other. And the trouble with this thing is that Brexit was always going to trample on someone's rights because it has to be a border, can't be magicked away. So it either could disrupt the rights of nationalists and republicans or the rights of unionists. As it happens, they've got opted for the unionists. So how long till we can return to some sort of normality? Well, I think it's going to be a very long time because this negotiation of a... Assuming this goes through, uh, and if it, it doesn't go through now, it goes through later, then you're going to have a very, very long negotiation on the future trading relationship. Uh, and the new relationship with the European Union. And this will all be tangled up in this, and we will still be hearing plenty about Northern Ireland for the foreseeable five, even ten years. It's a bit depressing, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> not that, you know, <laughs> nothing wrong with Northern Ireland. In, in nice terms, <laughs> I'd love to talk Titanic? about the uh, Titanic place. I've never, I haven't been there yet. I want to go there sometime soon. Yeah, absolutely. Last time I was in Northern Ireland was George Best's funeral. <laughs> <laughs> I went in 2000, and I remember it, Belfast felt like a sort of... Uh, slightly dodgy there was some sort of weird pole over the place and then went back I think it was five years later for George Best's funeral was mm-hmm. of covering it as a journalist and it just felt like a a normal vibrant city in a very short space of time you could feel something had changed mm-hmm. um, so it's a bit depressing it's gone backwards right let's try and I hope you've got cheery recommendations because uh, things have kind of got a bit uh, depressing it'll, it'll work out right in the end I mean, you, it? Could, you could reimagine the future I mean there are people talking about Irish unity in imaginative ways and there are people from a unionist um, Protestant background who are happy to say you know let's think about the future of Northern Ireland um, in, in imaginative ways and think about you know what kind of economy we want, how we want to mm-hmm. deal with climate change so there is a, there's a whole sort of range of discussions that are being had and that are increasingly confident I think in Northern Ireland that are not associated with the UPS in vain, the usual. Um, and so, I don't know, I, I think maybe there is space for that, and maybe, I mean, there could be positive and negative outcomes if we end up with this kind of arrangement. Um, that, But you kind of need an imagination mm. in Northern Ireland that hasn't been there before um, when it comes to... Uh, well, that sounds a bit like magic robots. And... You're saying, you know, no, no, something no, no, that no, no, hasn't no. existed before is no, going to exist like in the future. Kind of, I think we need high standards in governance. We've had, we've had pretty poor standards. We've had pretty poor levels of accountability and transparency. You could, you know, if the Northern Ireland Assembly is going to be more important, well, let's make it work um, properly uh, and expect a lot more from our MLAs and expect a lot more from the relationship within the UK because you can't look at Northern Ireland without also thinking of Scotland and Wales. Yes. Um, so this Indeed. isn't just a this isn't a concern you can just you know carve off into the yes you know uh, raise the um, make the Irish Sea increasingly wide. It's something for the UK as a whole, I think, to consider. Forgot about that question, but you've just reminded me. But, you know, we've got a little bit more time. Uh, is the union going to unravel completely oh. because of Northern Ireland? <laughs> Sorry to raise that one. <laughs> yeah, you've brought Scotland <laughs> and Wales into it. I, I think there is a, a serious prospect of um, something like that happening because. If you're the Scottish National Party and you're running the government in Scotland and you see what's happened to Northern Ireland, Northern Ireland, which voted majority against uh, leaving the EU, has now got a soft Brexit, whereas the rest of the United Kingdom, including Scotland, has a hard Brexit. The least you're going to do is demand the same as Northern Ireland. Uh, now, when that's denied, because they'll say you can't have a hard border at Hadrian's Wall, mm-hmm. uh, you, 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 then they're going to have another sense of grievance. They've already got 50% in favour of independence, according to the latest polls, because of the way Brexit's been going. This is going to up that. Then when the Tory government says, no, you can't have a referendum, 
then it's going to get a bit like Catalonia with them saying, well, we're going to have a referendum anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't hope it won't go the whole way that I work in Catalonia. I really don't want to see it go like that. But you have this, I would have thought that if this goes ahead on this basis, you stand a pretty good chance of having Scottish independence within the next 10 years. So then you'd have lost Scotland. And if you got, we were both right that it's going towards the United Ireland, you've actually dissolved the union of the United Kingdom as the price of getting out of the European Union. And it really is paradoxical. OK, uh, I think we've established that it's going to last a long time. It's going to be complicated, which leads us on to the final feature, which is in the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, OK. In the unlikely event this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. Uh, recommendations for understanding all this. Mm. One recommendation each to understand everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, Katie, what have you got for your, your first appearance on this podcast? I've got a double whammy of books that are due to be released on the 31st of October, which is um, a significant date, I believe. So Who knows? <laughs> Halloween. <laughs> Halloween. What do they, what do, they do in Northern massive Ireland? Northern do they do trick-or-treat or do they do guising? Uh, everything. Because we do guising in Scotland. No, we don't do guising. You do trick or treat. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, sorry, yeah, I proper, just went, off, went off, off, off message there. Yeah, sorry. Two books. Um, so one is called um, "I Am the Border, So I Am," and it's by the Irish Border at Border Irish. And the Twitter Twitter this account. Is the Twitter account. Yes. Yeah. And uh, there's another one called "Backstop Land" by Glenn Patterson, who's a, um, a novelist and writer from Northern Ireland. Um, and it looks both of them look really, set to be really interesting books and definitely worth a read and witty and entertaining and illuminating on Northern Ireland and all of this stuff um, as well as being about Brexit One of them will be more enlightening than the other, right? Because that's a comedy account, the, the Irish border really yeah, but, but it's not like Glenn, Glenn will be writing in a witty way, it's not an academic book right. say, okay. he's extremely clever Okay, yeah. Jonathan? Well Katie was allowed two, so I'm going to have two One is an oyster card and the other one's going to be an easy jet ticket to Belfast right, car rental. No, 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 no. And the, <laughs> you're going to use the Oyster card to get to uh, Camden, and you're going to walk across the border to Islington and see how that border yeah. goes. Yeah. Then you're going to take the easy jet and drive down to Warren Point and see the uh, monument to the 18 dead soldiers there, as many as the other dead people on that border. And you can see if you can tell the difference between the border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland and the border between Islington and Camden. Okay, that is a good, that obviously a reference to Boris Johnson who suggested they were... They seem to be unable to tell the difference. Hopefully he can now tell the difference. And while you're in Northern Ireland, you should go to Silent Valley. Oh, yes. That was amazing. It's not much there. It's not silent at all. It's just a valley, and they call it Silent Valley. Uh, this is br- a man, literally a man. It was jumped, silent before you Literally, got there, James. a man jumped out of a gorse bush on a golf club and said something very rude about the golf course, which he was correct as I was hacking my way around, and then said, "You must go to Silent Valley because mm-hmm. it's silent." And we went there, and it wasn't silent. It was just a valley. Like, this is an amazing <laughs> place. Is, uh, I, you know, we've got more. Northern Ireland grew right, on me at that point. I, like, I like this place. Now. This is wild. Okay, listen. Um, I think we have been sufficiently enlightened by this podcast, so I will. Uh, say thank you to my guests Jonathan and Katie and uh, come back this time next year and we'll see where we're at I think it'd be a good idea Uh, thank you and come back in a couple of weeks for another of these podcasts this is the what is it the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a changing Europe supported by King's College London and funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council thank you and goodbye